that's the work is our work on trusting how we're perceiving our child's emotional states and the events that happen and what's our role in this is our role to rescue them fix them make the crying stop as fast as we can and tell them it's going to be okay and they don't need to feel that way which is invalidating you know if we think about it or are we okay with allowing them to go to the depths While the parenting philosophy RIE, which stands for Resources for Infant Educators, was created by Magda Gerber, it was Janet Lansbury who really brought this parenting philosophy into the zeitgeist on a whole new scale. Janet was blogging and talking about respectful parenting long before it became a buzzword. Janet has been helping parents understand ways to adapt the RIE respectful principles centered on attunement and trust as their babies grew into toddlers and young children for years. She is the author of two of my favorite parenting books, Elevating Childcare, A Guide to Respectful Parenting, and No Bad Kids, Toddler Discipline Without Shame. She's the creator of the podcast Unruffled, and her new course, No Bad Kids, helps parents understand their children's behaviors and put into practice the notion of discipline as an act of compassion and love. I am a huge fan of Janet and her work, so it was such a delight and privilege to be able to have a conversation with her. Do you sometimes feel like what you're doing to try to support your child's big feelings and dysregulated behaviors isn't working? Or worse, it's adding fuel to their fire? This month, I'm excited to invite parents to join me in a new parenting group I'm running. Over the course of eight one-hour group sessions, I will help you understand exactly what is happening in your child's brain and body when they're acting out, strategies for effectively parenting in these tricky situations, and how to be flexible and nimble in your parenting so you can adjust your approach and be attuned to your child's needs at any given moment in time, even if you're not going to meet those needs. We'll be tackling everything from establishing secure attachment bonds, learning how you can stay calm when you're feeling triggered, addressing tantrums, power struggles, and effective discipline strategies, and combating parental guilt and burnout. Everyone will have plenty of time to ask questions, troubleshoot events from the week, and get personalized support from me during the group meetings. If you're interested in learning more about this eight-week group, which is ideal for parents of children between the ages of two to seven, email sarah at drsarahbren.com or go to upshabren.com forward slash contact to schedule a free 15-minute assessment call to see if this group would be a good fit for you. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy-to-understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hello, everybody. I'm really, really thrilled today because this is a very special episode. Today, we are talking with Janet Lansbury. I'm so honored to have you on the show. I'm so excited. Thank you for being here. Oh, Sarah. Well, we've been, this has been in the works for a long time, and I'm thrilled that we're finally doing it. I, I love your work. I love what you're putting out in the, all the spaces, the social media spaces, and um, we're obviously very like minded. So, thank you oh. for having me on. 
I appreciate that so much. And I found out about Rye because of your Parenting Mojo podcast where she does a lot of talk about Rye and she talks about you and she talks about your work. And then I was like, Rye is really interesting. And then I found your podcast Unruffled. And I listened to that so much when I was pregnant with my son after having him. It was such a grounding resource for me to just like hear you talk about all these different challenges parents have with like... I don't know. There's a way that you present these, these, these reflections on people's parental experiences that feel both incredibly validating, but also like you push people to think about things in a different way, in a really consistent way that I feel is just so valuable. And I, so I'm very, very grateful for, for your podcast. Thank you. Um, so You've done, you mean, you've been in the Rye world. You've put Rye on the map in a lot of ways. And like respectful parenting is sort of the, how did you kind of move into the respectful parenting stuff? Where does that fit? Is respectful parenting Rye? Is it a different thing in your mind? Well, it is, it's a uh, interpretation of Rye principles um, that go beyond so Rye principles are, are centered around the first two years. Uh, and it's not that, oh, now it all ends and we do something different if you're into this way. And not everybody is. That's okay. Uh, but this uh, Magda Gerber, my mentor, was focused on the foundations, building the foundations of relationships, building the foundation of a child's self-image, self-worth, and as you know, as a psychologist, uh, it's, it's really a lot of it happens in those first two years. You know, that's a very, very formative time. So and it's also a time that people don't so much think to respect children because they aren't as expressive verbally and they aren't they don't seem so much like people then. Mm -hmm. And Magda said the opposite. She said, well, that is the most important time, though, to take the leap of, of faith and start treating them as this important person in the world and treat them with that respect. So that's why it's focused on the first couple of years. Uh, she was very she's also just she loves the the kind of pre expressive verbal stages, you know, just how that stretches us to really observe and tune in and try to take that child's point of view when it's not as easy, right? Because they're not mm -hmm. telling us. So that was a fascinating time for her. She, all her research told her that that was the most important time. So that's what that does. Well, in my classes, so the classes that we teach that I learned how to teach through her, uh, and then start doing on my own with no no real uh, plan to do that. But I just wanted to study with her and learn everything from her. And then the next thing to do, because I was certified then, uh, was to to start teaching it. I'd already been teaching it with her, assisting her in the classes. So I, then I found that I really loved that. But what I learned is also that I love the infant stage. I love the the second year is probably my favorite of all with children mm -hmm. but the parents I was working with 
well, starting in the second year, they, they would really, I really started to feel like this is where I have something. I just have something to offer here. That's different. You know, I really mm-hmm. have, I get this time so much. And, and that's when I would feel like my classes would really, really gel. Like I could feel that I was being helpful. I could feel that I was being able to learn to uh, intuit things that were going on. Um, and I loved it. And then my parent, the parents of my classes that normally would, it sort of wraps up around the end of two years, but mine would want to keep going. And I would too, because they're like, now we really need help now, you know, <laughs> but things hitting the fan and we're, we're like, we really need more and we love this. And so I would get into it and then we'd, so we, the classes would go sometimes till sort of more like three and a half. Um, then they would literally like be taking down the space <laughs> and they couldn't really play just in there anymore. But sometimes I would continue it at people's homes mm-hmm. in their backyards, have, keep the group going. And yeah, so, but I developed these tools that are, are really what probably most people, uh, know me for the no bad kids tools, the, mm-hmm. um, uh, all the discipline thing that people need so much help with, understandably, because it's not just, it's not as simple anymore. The child isn't just always telling you, you know, showing you exactly what they need. It's sometimes they need you to say no. And sometimes they need, you know, but they're not, it doesn't seem like it. So it's a really interesting time that can be confusing for parents. So I found this was a time that I just had a, I don't know, like a, affinity for. And, uh, so all of that stuff that I share isn't really, it's not the rye approach exactly because it wasn't, uh, talked about. I mean, Magda did talk about the toddler years in the second year, but not all these details that I offer. Um, mm-hmm. and they're just things that I learned in all the weeks to weeks of working with children. Sometimes it would be, I would just have an idea. Oh, try this. And then they'd come back the next week. They say, that's working. (laughs) I was as surprised as them. (laughs) Then I realized that, yeah, I was just learning, learning, learning. So I don't know, for me, I feel like that is the best way to learn about uh, children is to observe them, them. to, to be with them week to week, see the development, see the interactions with the parents how the parents, you know, are affecting the child and how these kind of uh, dualities, these like cycles are are happening. And then the, if the parent shifts, then they can shift out the cycle. Um, but otherwise they can get really caught up in it. Um, so all of that is just fascinating to me. I kind of love, um, I just love like understanding people's story, like figuring it out, Um so I found that I love that time. So anyway, that's what I call respectful parenting because it isn't necessarily wry, although it stems from that for sure. Yeah. And like, I also want to ask you so many questions about like what Magda Gerber was like, cause I'm like, you know, super curious, but one of the things that you just brought up that I feel like is that I want to kind of stick with for a second is this idea that like you could take these foundational principles or you know, frameworks that Rye gives in these early, early years, which are super important, 
years because it's the years that like the blueprints get written, right? Mm-hmm. From an attachment perspective, like those first couple years, the experience a child has with their primary attachment figures, the people who are taking care of them, those go in, like get they get inputted. <laughs> There's like an actual like map that gets created from those experiences that then children use throughout their life to kind of predict how the world's going to respond to them. So that so for me, when I found Rye, I was like, this maps onto attachment science so beautifully because it honors the fact that we are writing a blue, we are important. We, the parents are important in informing this child's blueprint of themselves and of the other people whom their attachment systems. So being intentional in those couple first years is so critical, mm-hmm. but yeah, it doesn't stop after two years and like kids keep growing and parents continue to need support because it does get messier and more confusing. And it, you know, as kids develop, they all develop in all kinds of wild and crazy directions appropriately. So, and like a simple rule book really doesn't work anymore for the older years because it's like a bud, right? A bud is coming through the ground. It kind of looks the same, no matter what plant you're looking at, but it's all, you know, as that plant gets more mature, it's going to go and grow off in all kinds of different directions and it won't look the same as another plant. So I like this idea of use of, you know, every, we have to evolve the way we think as kids get older and parents need more and more support during this time as well, because it's confusing. Yes, absolutely. I just want to counter one thing you said, though, in terms of the Rye approach, because it is a, it's a common way that it's sometimes thought of. these are rules. Like, I don't see them as rules at all. Mm-hmm. These are just suggestions that are all part of this consistent kind of holistic way of engaging with children and perceiving children. Um, because perceiving them, the way we perceive them is how we will naturally engage with them. Um, so, so, yeah. It's, yeah. There's no rules. <laughs> True. And that's a good distinction. And I, I, you're right. And I'm glad you pointed that out. Cause like, I think with Rye, it's more to me at least. Cause I, when I started learning about Rye, my, like my big takeaways were about my experience with my child. Like how do I pay attention during the times of the day, the routines of the day that have the most impact for my relationship with my child. So those caregiving moments. And then also outside of the caregiving moments, being able to sit back and just kind of be like, for me, that was incredibly profound because I think most parents, myself included, before I learned about this approach, feel very compelled to fill in all the space do all the things. And the caregiving is just like one random extra thing on the list. But all the times outside of that, it's like entertain your child, stimulate your child, teach your child, do all these things for your child. And then, you know, I do a ton of work with maternal mental health and postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. And like, I find Rye to be so helpful for the mothers and parents because it gives them permission to have space for themselves to sit back and not feel like it's all about my child and what I have to do for my child. It's There's so much more just ability to yourself be a human being as the parent, which I think is invaluable permission for parents to like 
stay connected to themselves in parenthood. Yes. And it's, it's not just permission. It's, it's recognizing that this is actually uh, a better gift to your child as well, that you are a three-dimensional person that is always there when they need something, but not always there the moment they want something um, or won't even say yes to everything that they want. Um, and that that, but in that space, you know, just what you're talking about, about the play. Um, so the, often that's framed as, or misunderstood as, oh, you're just sitting back and being hands off. And you're like, it sounds like this ignoring thing. Um, and then you're just leaving your child and people say like, oh, leaving your child to cry, you know, Mm-hmm. No, this is allowing your child to cry. Um, this is a this is more attunement than being in there fixing and doing and talking and because this is this is actually taking in. This is listening. This is giving that space. And in play, it's giving that space for a child to feel. You know, when you do have the time, Magda called it the once nothing quality time, where we are just, we, we do from time to time, if we want to be there playing with our child, the way she suggested doing it is that we take away all the distractions. We're fully present, but we're not giving input. We're in responsive mode so that our child gets all these messages, which would never have occurred to me before learning about this that are really important. And I don't want to say though, that it's like, uh, just you're, if you're doing it this way, you're getting good attachment. And if you're not, you're not you know, attachment is a much more forgiving uh, process. This is just sort of a style that also gives your child these other messages that it just enhances, it enhances the bonding between you and it enhances your child's feeling of loving learning, um, feeling competent, feeling, like they can do things feeling that they're enough mm-hmm. um, in your eyes that they don't have to perform for you. So when we're sitting there and we're focused, but we're not saying, okay, let's go over your letters and your numbers or play this way or look at what this thing can do. Our child gets this phenomenal message of acceptance uh, that you don't even have to be doing anything. And I still want to be with you. And I'm still interested in you, even when you're just scratching the carpet or, or, uh, I don't know, just sitting there thinking I can, we can be together and I love you this way. And you are just interesting as you are, you don't have to be, you know, pulling me into a game to get my attention. You don't have to be, uh, um, performing for me, all of those things that to me were just, like you said, it's, we thought we're supposed to do that. We thought we're supposed to stimulate and we're supposed to teach. And we're all, but I love Magda's quote. It's one of my favorites. Be careful what you teach. It may interfere with what they're learning because you think you're teaching one thing, but you're actually teaching these other messages too, that time with me, playing with me means you've got to pull me in. You've got to kind of perform. Um, you can't, you know, you're, it can't just be you just following your own 
interests or, you know, thinking and me still giving you that attention. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where I think a lot of times it could be hard for parents to, uh, when parents, when they get into, oh, my child won't play independently and they won't play, uh, they always need me. It's hard for the parent to switch into when I am playing with you, I'm being careful not to direct you because of the power that I know I have to change all of your plans and thoughts in anything I do. And then children get used to that. That's the way I engage with them. They fill in, they tell me what to do. This doesn't mean you never, ever play with your child, but just balancing it with time where uh, you're really allowing them to make the choices. This was really a fun challenge for me because I would always see something like, oh, pull this into your play. Like, wouldn't that be cool? All these great ideas, even in my classes with children that that weren't mine, I always have, oh, they're going to do that or they should do that or maybe they'll do that. And I now I just listen and go, oh, that's interesting. You've got all these plans. Just wait. And they do something phenomenally better, you know? Yeah. This idea that like, if we give, if we interrupt too much, where they've got so much access to creativity and a flow through their play, which doesn't always look the way we think it's going to look. Like I remember, you know, when I did the Rye Foundations training with Deborah Carlisle Solomon, and that was just an incredible experience. And there was a lot of times where she does a lot of experiential, like stuff in the trainings and she would have us like start to play with something and then she'd just come in and start talking to us and like interrupting us and like you know pulling other things and and then like afterwards she'd be like so what did that feel like and and, you know it was like very interesting to have this experience of like I'm trying, me as a grown up is sitting there trying to play with something. And then someone comes and sort of like starts messing with it. And I was like, Oh, I get it. That doesn't, that kind of is like, and the, in, and of course, as parents, our intentions are always, you know, great. We want to be sharing with this. And sometimes we want to play too, cause it's fun. And sometimes we feel like we have to do certain things or we're supposed to be, you know, teaching them how to do it correctly, quote unquote. And, but like kids might actually come up with something completely different if we don't kind of interject. And so that trust, that curiosity versus that mindset of like, I'm the one that's got to fill you up with all this information or this these ways of doing things just to sort of be like, I'm here to learn from you and just sit back and see what you are going to show me about how you solve problems, about how you think about things, about how you create stuff. And I don't know, that's, that's kind of beautiful for parents to get that mindset shift. Do you see that too? Like when you're working with parents, when they are able to hit that kind of switching point in their perception Yeah, it happens usually, I mean, in our classes, because we start with infants, it happens, you know, at the infant level where we're, um, the toy will be next to the baby's hand and the baby's lying on their back, maybe just a three, four month old baby. And the, maybe the baby's looking towards the toy and how much do we want to put that toy in the baby's hand, right? Or like show it to them, oh, here it is right here, because it's maybe just out of their reach. But then 
we don't <laughs> if we can't if we can help it and we see oh that baby is they're not in a hurry to grab that they're just interested in the distance between their hand and that toy or they're interested in what happens when they stretch their arm out all the way and and you know you get you start to get oh they have their own point of view and it's actually very different from all my stuff and it's a much healthier point of view actually because they're not just trying to get to the finish line try to get to the end give it to me you know I've got to do the thing but we can influence them that way by always giving it to them and always and then that creates all this dependency that's you know wouldn't be there otherwise I mean of course children are very dependent on us in the early years for a lot of things but not for this but if we take that on too then they are and I mean, honestly, I've because my youngest is about to graduate from college next week. Oh. I have seen, to me, I've seen exactly how that thing that we do can do with a baby leads directly to them making all kinds of decisions for themselves, uh, doing their own college apps, everything, like figuring out what they want to making career choices and things that, you know, I'm reading a lot of studies today saying kids are, some kids are struggling with dependency on the parent and um, not feeling like they have a sense of strong sense of self and they're not launching, you know, as adult, young adults. And um, they're still depending on the parent in a way to like, okay, you should do this and let me help you do that. And, and, uh, what do I do now kind of thing, you know? So, mm -hmm. so we set that up early. It's not that we can't change it at any time we can, but it's just kind of this cool, <laughs> amazing thing to start it as early as possible because you see, wow, this baby is so capable. What was I thinking that I needed to stuff their heads with stimulation? Mm -hmm. They've got, they have a much better plan for themselves. And we would see that in the classes. Actually, that is one thing the parents would always, you know, we'd always talk about at the end of class, like, could we have ever designed this curriculum for them or anything one, one hundredth as good and powerful and meaningful to them? No way. Yeah. And it's funny too, because like kind of similar to this idea of like, if we're, you know, designing their learning by directing their play there's an inherent kind of implication. You need my help to figure this stuff out, which can, like you're saying, can breed this sort of unconscious sense of dependency on the parent. I do, and that doesn't necessarily mean your child's going to become codependent or won't know how to deal with their big feelings by themselves. But, you know, a kind of parallel to this is, so I do a lot of therapy with kids who have anxiety and um, parents who get kind of entrenched in these sort of accommodation like loops where like, you know, a child doesn't want to, you know, do something by themselves. So the parent will do it for them. Or, you know, we, where your parent helps the child to avoid feeling anxiety. And then it gets kind of like, we all get kind of stuck in this loop, um, which is, I think it happens all the time in families, whether kids have an anxiety disorder or not, because all human 
just humans have anxiety and this is what we do when we feel anxious or distressed. We want our parents to help us not feel that way. And our parents are very drawn to take that distress away from us and and then we get dependent on that. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we do in therapy for kids with anxiety is we help the parents kind of modify their accommodations and start to allow the child to experience the anxiety and survive it and internalize, okay, I can handle this feeling and it's not as, it's uncomfortable, but I can handle that. I don't have to avoid this feeling. And like, I, there's a lot of parallels between the way that Rye approaches parenting and child development and that relationship between the child and the parent that to me is always mapped on very well to a lot of the sort of things we do in therapy um, it's not a therapeutic model. It just feels very prophylactic to me, just in general. I've always been, when I f- found out about it, I was already a psychologist and I was like, this feels like, you know, the things that we could do to help people from developing this stuff in the long run. Yeah. Preventative medicine. Yeah. I've often thought of it that way. Um, but to give you and to give anybody listening an actual story of how that works. Um, I did that with a parent. So this family was, this is, these kids were a little bit older and they were like three and a half or whatever, turning four. And so we were, we had moved the class to a backyard. Um, this is not that long ago. And the child, so we're in this family's backyard and, um, the family had a little dog and this little boy, was afraid of the dog. It was just a little dog coming close and it was a safe dog. But the mother did the normal thing, whoop, you know, swept him right up and uh, said, oh, he's been so afraid of her. He saw a dog the other day and now he's really afraid of dogs. And um, so, yeah, what do I do? And I said, well, why don't you try next time instead of scooping him up, get down next to him. So your hand is there. So the dog can't come close and do anything to him and allow him to share the feelings there of being afraid of the dog while you're keeping him safe. Um, and so instead of rescuing, because that means if I'm rescuing you as a parent to a child, that means, Oh, they agree that this is not safe. They agree that I can't handle this. They're, that's what accommodating does. My parent agrees. And then now it's really getting cemented for me, right? That my parent mm-hmm. also believes this. Obviously, that's not what we want. We think we're doing as parents, but that's how it comes across. So now we're there. We're saying, yeah, oh, yeah, you're really scared. You know, this is, you know, you don't like this. And I'm going to keep you safe. And whatever he's sharing you're just receiving. You don't have to talk a lot, but just just receiving it with that energy of like, yeah, it's okay to feel that way about the dog. So then later in that same class, it was so interesting, or maybe it was the next class, next week, but there was the family also had cats because um, I think this dog was like one of the other parents' dogs that came, but uh, the family had cats and the child, the little boy was he, we were doing snack time, which we do in the, uh, towards the middle of the class. And so we're all, they're all sitting outside on these little stools and this cat comes by and the boy starts freaking out. He's sitting Mm -hmm. there with me. I'm doing the snack time. 
Um, and I'll, sometimes I'll have like, up to like nine children there, but usually it's a few less and they're amazing. They sit totally from the time they're 11 months. I mean, that's all other thing. Um, they stay there while they're eating. They don't, they sit and wait for you. They love the whole routine, but anyway, he's sitting there and he's freaking out that this, this cat's coming by and I see his mother over there, like kind of uncomfortable, obviously. And I said, yeah, just, just wait, just stay there. And so I talked to the boy. I mean, I just kind of didn't really talk to him that much, but I, I said, yeah, the, oh, now you're scared by that, that cat. It just suddenly goes by. Right. And so I was kind of joining him in, yeah, you have a right to real estate kind of attitude and allowing him to feel that. But it was pretty, yeah, he was pretty upset. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, he didn't get up from the chair, though, <laughs> with me at snack and go run to his mother. Another interesting thing, you know, but the mother could have come over and run to him. That was a desire that she had, I'm sure. So anyway, then finally he got through that one. We did snack, like everything was fine. So then we're leaving and I'm driving down the street and uh, a, I see this, or I'm getting ready to, to leave and I see the family like walking down the street and there's this huge cat that comes by <laughs> and he starts freaking out and the mom turned to me because I was in my car. What should I do? What should I do? I said, just stay there with him. Like, let him say it. Don't pick him up, you know, which is a weird thing to say. You don't want to say to parents, don't pick your child up. But this parent trusted me and, you know, we've been through it. So anyway, so then he had the, a very much shorter reaction and then he was fine. And then the next week she told me it never happened again. Never happened again, you know? So yeah, it works, but you've got to, I mean, and that's why all of my podcasts and almost everything I share, it always comes down to this thing about feelings. How are, if we're, how are we at, where are we in our process of learning to allow this other person that we feel so responsible for and vulnerable to, to have the whole range of feelings mm -hmm. and for us to not be threatened by it and to feel, know that it's healthy and safe and the best thing for them to experience it. You know, the only way out is through, right? So absolutely. anyway, that's, that's a great story. And it's interesting because I find very similar, like, you know, obviously the, the, the severity is going to have some impact on like how long it takes to get the child to move through it and kind of be able to integrate this new belief system that I can handle this thing that I'm afraid of. But I, it often doesn't take that many times for them, for you, for you to have that sort of non-rescuing grounding response in the face of their distress and this is true for not just anxiety, but for frustration, for anger, for all the kinds of shame, like any of those big feelings that are often very dysregulating and that we are very inclined to want to avoid, understandably. But when we don't avoid them and we reflect back to our kid this confidence that they can handle this feeling and that we can handle them handling this feeling and just sort of communicating some safety with our like calm nervous system, you know, and our, like, we're not in the threat response. So we're, you know, non-verbally just brain to brain amygdala to amygdala 
if I'm not in a threat response, your amygdala is going to kind of read, mom thinks it's safe, so we can simmer, we can calm down. It's it, it really is impactful. Like it really changes things very quickly if you're in a pattern where that's not what's happening. Like children's brains are so incredibly adaptive and they really can learn emotion tolerance if we like through this type of intervention. Yeah, for sure. And it's just feeling like you're, you were saying it's, feeling that trust, it, then that's the work is our work on trusting how we're perceiving our child's emotional states and the events that happen. And what's our role in this is our role to rescue them and fix them and make the crying stop as fast as we can and tell them it's going to be okay. And they don't need to feel that way, which is invalidating. You know, if we think about it or, are we okay with allowing them to go to the depths? Uh, and you know, as young children, they go to the depths a lot. They go to the heights, they go to the depths, they do the whole thing. I mean, in a way it's enviable, right? That they can have such a range and be so full about it and not be stuffing things and baggaging things. And uh, it's something we can all kind of appreciate <laughs> on an adult level, I think, or I can. Um not that I want to go wild everywhere, but, <laughs> but, you know, to have that facility to just let it out. Right. It's a good thing. It is. And it's interesting because if you think about it, because our kids so innately can do it, if you're interested in like the human condition, it's good to point out, like we're born with this ability. If as adults, we don't have it, it's because we unlearned that innate ability at some point in our lives, probably from our environmental responses to our emotions. And so as a society, I think historically, we've had a bad habit, unintentionally thinking it was helpful of really teaching children to turn off the feelings. And I think this movement of respectful parenting, responsive parenting, whatever you want to call it, is kind of an, the antithesis of that, like allowing children to experience, like you said, that full range of emotion, using other ways of helping them to figure out how to navigate it than telling them to turn it off. And like I genuinely believe, and there's lots of research that backs this up, that this is a huge predictor of mental wellness in later life. Yes. Well, Magda used to say to us, we're putting the therapist out of business. <laughs> yeah. Nothing personal. No. Hey, I, I always say my goal in teaching, that's why I switched into like, it's so funny because I started out doing working primarily with adults with trauma history. That was my, like, I'm a, not a child psychologist. I'm an adult psychologist. I work with adults with trauma backgrounds and like chronic childhood attachment wounds and ruptures and working with adults to kind of understand the, the sort of ways in which their sense of self has, had been fragmented and need to like reintegrate it and do sort of inner child reparenting stuff. When I found Rye and sort of the more like kind of what you do with like the older kids, this respectful parenting, I was like, I want to do more of that because I genuinely think it will prevent um, 
people needing as much therapy in the future. And I'm cool with that. Like, that's great. Like if you could put therapists out of business, I'll go find something else to do happily. <laughs> it's just like, well, it's, and I'm a fan of therapy, by the way. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't think she really meant that totally literally, but yeah. Well, you know, there are other things people can go to therapy for, but I think yeah. not, you know, setting that foundation for really healthy child development will limit. It doesn't mean that no one's going to need help in the future or things, bad things won't happen or hard things won't happen and we need some help around it. Sure. But to build that strength in the first couple years, that ability to have a healthy relationship with our emotions, confidence that we can handle hard things, trust in our environment that they're going to see us and reflect our inner experience back to us with at least a good amount of accuracy and empathy most of the time, like that's going to set people up for success. It yeah. doesn't mean it will be perfect, but it would be a lot better than a lot of the alternatives. Definitely. And her, her thing, her image also of therapy, another thing she used to say was, um, she used to say, uh, so yeah, why are we, everybody has to go pay for therapy when they're older just to get someone to listen to how terrified they were of dogs for a moment, you know, for this period of their life, the, you know, surprisingness of, or whatever, that they, you know, that's what we were just, we, we want someone, I know there's all different kinds of therapies, but I think at her time too, it was that psychoanalytic and it's like, so now you're, they won't have to grow up and have to pay someone to listen to their feelings. You can do that for them Mm -hmm. by just, calming yourself and trusting yeah that is positive and i think there's like you know you know you talk a lot about intergenerational transmission of trauma and i think that there's a when we can do this for our kids there's a part of us that's also probably doing it for ourselves maybe our inner child a little bit like this idea that maybe i didn't have permission in my childhood to emote freely even like you know, maybe some feelings were okay, but some weren't and mm-hmm. things were unpredictable if I was showed up in a certain way. And when we break that cycle and show up differently for our kids, it's a gift to them, but it is healing for us. Yes. That's what you, I found. That's yeah, like, absolutely what I found like right away when I first took my baby to a class, I, I felt something shifting in me, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of self-discovery that goes along with and healing, um, because we're, do, we're, we have the opportunity to do it differently for our child. And that just gives us hope and helps us to see ourselves. Right. Um, so yeah, that's how it worked. So Magda was never really in, she wasn't into the, I'm going to help people heal from trauma and, you know, the parents issues, but she would reflect on that, that they're going to come up for you. And yeah, that this isn't, uh, that by doing it differently and seeing in your child that you can do this differently, that it, it does heal yourself. Now, people that have serious trauma, um, they will need more help than this. But for me, it's really been, was enough to kind of heal my um, issues, most of them, <laughs> um, pretty well. And yeah, that's the, the whole journey of it, of the, even just observing, learning how to observe where, and seeing all the projections that come up for you about 
how they're feeling, what's going on. Now I do it with my dog. I project <laughs> all over because we're empty nesters. So our dog, oh, is he depressed? What's going on? Um, there's a lot of that, but it's really easy to do with children, especially when they're just starting to talk mm-hmm. um, and tell you what's going on. So, so yeah, this is a, I don't know, for me, it's been healing. It's been life-changing. It's been just illuminating in a million different ways and continues to be uh, just, I keep learning from it and from the children I work with and the parents I work with. Um, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating field. I'm glad you're in this. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you're in it. I, I'm curious too, like, I know you have this, I mean, your books, Elevating Childcare and No Bad Kids. And I know that the course, No Bad Kids is obviously kind of an extension of the more of the work you do with, with toddlers and up, like these older children who are having, you know, bigger feelings, bigger challenges, more behaviors. They just, it's, it's a harder time, I think sometimes. And it can stir up a lot more for parents, right? Our fear, our guilt, our fear of being judged by other parents, like the pressure to like have a quote, good, well-behaved kid. Like, can you talk a little bit about your, like what you're helping parents to kind of focus on when you're doing the no bad kids work? Well, um, I know the parents that it's very tempting to just want to get, what do I do in this situation? What do I do in that situation? Et cetera. Um, I do some of that, but the majority of the course. So my, the reason I made this course, uh, it's really much more than an extension of my book. It's, it's something, it's a holistic kind of immersion step-by-step into my goal is the parents, uh, can internalize the, this perspective and understands how it looks by some of the, a lot of the examples I give, understand some of the tools that are part of it, but it's really more than anything, it's the way that we see always, because the way that we see our child in that moment when they're upset or being you know, bratty or whatever is if we see a brat, if we see a scary kid, if we see somebody that's going to go to jail when they're older, if we see, I must be the worst parent in the world. If there's so many things we could see that are going to make us react naturally in a very uncomfortable manner, which is then going to create more of that behavior or different other behavior that we don't want from that child, because the child is absorbing, just like with the story I told about the fear the child is absorbing our discomfort. Most of all, that's always setting a tone for them. And the more they absorb, the more they have to kind of work it out of their system, process it out, which means it comes out on the behavior and the fears and the anxiety, whatever. Um, so it's practicing this perspective uh, so that it becomes a part of us. So that another one of my goals is that I just want to free parents from having to get the you know, there's this word that, or this term all the time now, bite-sized, give them bite-sized, give them bite-sized. And I, it really rubs me the wrong way after a while, because as much as I know parents only have time for bite-sized, it's never going to satiate you. You're going to need more and more bites and be dependent, just like we can make children more dependent on 
out going outside for the answers, the answers, the answers. I want people to be able to feel the answers inside them because mm-hmm. their perception is clear. They're as po- clear as possible. We're never going to be perfectly clear, but that we're leaning more towards and we're gradually getting better at really seeing the separation between us and our child and what's that something's going on with them. And that will naturally, just like you were saying about being calm, being a safe presence when the child is processing a fear or frustration or whatever, that's, we'll, we'll be able to be that safe presence because we feel it. We feel safe about mm-hmm. it because of the way we're seeing it as non-threatening. And so that is like the focus of the course, really. I mean, the whole first section of it is really a lot of just perception, looking at some videos, um, me talking them through some visualizations, uh, and then just a lot of information about how, what's really going on with your child. Um, in these moments and all the different things it could be. And uh, just so that people can navigate it from the inside out. Anyway, I think I had a really big goal (laughs) and I feel like that I was able to accomplish it um, for the most part. I mean, uh, there's always more that I want to say, you know, when I think about that, I'll think of something else. I'll think, Oh, I could have put that in the course. Uh, But it's, it's over four hours and, uh, I'm, I am going to add more Q&A sessions on it, like follow-up Q&A sessions on it, um, uh-huh. and just keep adding on to what people have already gotten. And I'm still offering it at an introductory discount, so it might be a good time. But uh, yeah, it's it's just, it's the only way I could do a course like this <laughs> is to, I mean, when I used to, to blog in 2009, when I first started online sharing this stuff, I, uh, the, everybody was saying then it was sort of similar to bite size. They were saying 300 words. That's the the best blog. Mine were 1500 words. You know, I'd had to cut it down to a a thousand sometimes, but that's, I don't want surface. I'm not interested in surface. It bores Mm -hmm. me. I don't think it's helpful to parents in the end. I think it just makes them feel less confident. I want you to go out there in the playground with your child or with other people or your in-laws coming over. And even if your child's a mess, I want you to feel really proud of the way that you handle the situation. Not that they have to agree with everything you did, but it's interesting because people are, (laughs) I notice this in my own extended family. I mean, they're, Somehow, even if your child is behaving horribly, the way that you handle it, they're impressed. They really are. And I just want people to feel that level of, I've got this and mm-hmm. I'm not going to get anything I can't handle. And, uh, you know, I can, I can do this and whatever. And not everyone's going to agree, but they're they won't feel, they won't feel unsafe. Cause I think that's also a lot of the reason that people do uh, judge other parents is that they feel something's really out of control here. Something's really mm-hmm. not safe going on. Like they're letting their child scream out of the 
market in front of everyone instead of, you know, this is the time we got to leave. We're going to leave the cart. Here we go. You know, we're right. going to the cart because you deserve that privacy, not because I'm embarrassed, but, and we want to be considerate of other people. So there's ways that you can do it that, um, yeah, you can still feel heroic even. Yeah. Um, so that's what I want to give parents because that's what I got from this work. I yeah. went from somebody that had zero confidence really. Um, and could never say no to people or, um, have boundaries. You know, I still struggle with that with adults sometimes, you know, just, I mean, not that I can never say no, but it's, it's really hard for me to assert my, my boundaries. I'm getting better at it. Thanks to the children that all the children I've worked with, but I've come such a long way, like where I know, well, this I can do, you know, I can do this and, um, it works. It really works. I really, there you go. I believe it does work. Like I really do. And I think, you know, I think you have a particularly, you know, unique knack for like when, when you talk about when you talk to parents about ways that they can, like people are always writing you to your podcast being like, what do I do to do, to make my kid do this or stop doing this? Or how do I get my kid to do this? Or it's a lot about changing the child's behavior. Mm -hmm. And invariably you help the parent feel very heard and see how they can change their behavior. And I love that so much because it's like the child's behavior really isn't Sure, there are certain behaviors that are problematic and have consequences and aren't, and aren't productive, but in and of themselves, the child's behavior really isn't usually the issue. Um, or it's certainly, if we want to change it, focusing exclusively on the child's behavior doesn't actually help. Like if we want to change the child's behavior or help them be more in control when they're having big feelings, that's really a byproduct of other stuff if we do it right. Right. Like, so if you can kind of move a couple steps back, which I think you're so good at helping parents see what those steps are, where they can say like, well, what, why don't we start with how you're experiencing this? Why don't we start with what you're perceiving and the meaning you're giving it and how that's impacting how you're then showing up and seeing if we can rewind a little further, shift the perspective, find our confidence and remember what our role is, tune out all the noise from all the eyes on us at the supermarket or wherever and tune into our kid. And then if we do that enough and we start to get really good at skills around that the child's behavior usually changes over time. For sure. Yeah. And it, can ch it changes quickly. Usually. I mean, depending on how committed we are to, to changing, it's, it's really, really up to us. And that's the same thing I say with parents when they say, is it too late? And it, absolutely not a million times. No, it's not too late. Um, I say this in my course as well. Um, but it's harder for you because you've gotten used to seeing your child a certain way. So the challenge is with you shifting the way that you see, which is, I believe what my course does. And that's harder. The longer you've been seeing one way, it's just harder to change tracks. You know, we're adults. We don't learn as quickly as the children. We're not able to change as easily and adapt as easily as children. But if we can do it, they will be right there doing it with us. You know, they'll, they'll be right there. Uh, because just when you were talking about 
even um, what's wrong with my child type feeling natural to have. Right. So now zoom over and be in that child who is feeling their parent distressed, concerned, worried, you know, uh, puzzled about me. And that's what I'm getting. So I was acting like this because there were some boys in my preschool and we were all playing really rough and it got a little out of hand and I'm coming home with this excitable energy. And now my parent, you know, the parents thinking, Oh gosh, there's something wrong with him. Like he's too hyper. He's not being nice. And, you know, done all these great things for him. And he's, you know, and whatever, there's something really wrong and I'm not doing it right. And, you know, so now the parent is taking it to another level mm-hmm. by their reaction to the, instead of being, wow, what's up with you? This, you know, you got a lot of, <laughs> you're full of beans this afternoon. Um, what's going on? You know, if that attitude uh, becomes fear on our part, easy to do, right? Because we care so much about this. And maybe we don't have confidence in ourselves doing this job. So then now the child is, now this is just taken on a whole other level. Um, and we're going to see more of it because our child is like, why can't my parent handle this? What I'm just a little guy, you know, what they're so big and powerful, like they're off balance. What's going on here. So it's not like we're harming our child. We're doing trauma or whatever. It's just understanding the point of view that that is a person with a point of view Mm-hmm. And if we even want to help their behavior, we've got to understand their point of view mm-hmm. on us and the way that we react. And, you know, we are always going to be the power players there. Yeah. Um, and I think so. you do a very, I think you do a very beautiful job of empowering parents to take that role. Like it's okay to be in charge. It's okay to I get so many people who ask me like, is it okay to say no to my kid? I'm like, it's very okay to say no to your kid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's your job to say no to your kid. It's good to say no to your kid. Your kid really wants you to show them where the edges are. Otherwise the world feels very unbounded and that's really anxiety provoking. And it's definitely okay. Critical to do that. You can do it in a really warm way. And a grown up adult is afraid to upset you or say something you won't like or, and you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm running. I'm, I'm the head of this thing. And I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, boy, <laughs> I'm not very safe right here because and the parents feeling like they're being very kind and loving, which they, they are in some ways, but it's just understanding that child's experience of mm-hmm. everything we do and how, what is sensitive, front row audience they are mm-hmm. to us at all times. You know, we've got more power than we'll ever have with another person again. Uh, and that can be scary for us because it's a big responsibility, but it also means that we don't have to make it all so hard. You know, we can own that we already have this power and that, I don't know. I, 
Hopefully that's not too complicated <laughs> to understand. Oh, I don't think so. I, f- I hope it's, I hope it feels simple. I mean, it's not easy. Don't get me wrong. Simple isn't necessarily easy, but I do think it's simple, right? It's, I know my role. I know your role. And I have to learn that, right? We're not always, that's not intuitive. Like I do think in order to really know what your role is as a parent and what your child's role is as a parent, you do need some basic info on child development and like how, yeah. like how those things happen. But, you know, I think it can be done. It can be done. And I think you do a great job of, of helping parents feel like they can do this which is how you end every episode. Of your podcast. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I love, I love it. I love the, love the detective work and, <laughs> and the uh, problem solving. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It's been like an absolute pleasure talking with you. I could talk to you for hours. If, if people want to keep hearing from you, learn more about the work you're doing. If they're not familiar with your podcast. If, they want to learn more about No Bad Kids course. What, how, where should they go? Well, they can go to one place, um, <laughs> JanetLansbury.com. And I also have, well, because the podcast transcripts are included. There's over, but they're like 400 and something, maybe 500 written articles. There are whatever, almost 300 or maybe 300 by now, podcasts with transcripts. So you can read or listen or whatever you want to do. They're all there. My books are there. Information about my course is there. Um, And then you can link to something that gives you a lot of details about the course and what parents are saying about it and the feedback that I've been getting. Uh, And it's all there. And I'm kind of proud that I have it all out there for free. Like uh, all my articles, I haven't put them behind a, a wall or paywall or anything. And there, a lot of them are from my early days of, of going online. And in those days, people would comment and comment. We'd have all these discussions inside on people's websites. Uh-huh. That's what we did. And all of this stuff that I was saying was pretty new. I know I'm not the only one to be talking about it, but Online, I was pretty much the only one talking about it uh, for a while, and there's some. There's like 200 comments on some of the the oh, posts wow. and stuff, which I'm really proud of. I just yeah. love that there was that I kind of like, conversation, and it keeps coming. Like I keep getting comments every day on on articles and podcasts. So anyway, that's, that's awesome. It's all there. Yeah. Well, we'll link to the, in the show notes, all of this, but it's really go to JanetLansbury.com. Um, you can listen to Unruffled, you know, anywhere where you find podcasts, but it's, it is, I still listen to it when I'm having a hard parenting day and I just need to like hear the reassurance that like, okay, I can do this. Like we get, and like, I literally do this all day, every day with other people. And I'm like, I still need it for me because I'm still figuring it out too. It's so parenting is very hard and there's it's layers right and that's what yeah. makes it that we can say that's so intimidating and impossible but we can also say that's kind of intriguing too there's something interesting here going on about what I'm learning about myself mm-hmm. along with my child mm-hmm. absolutely well thank you so much thank you I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Janet as much as I did In this episode, we talked about the importance of helping children tolerate discomfort and 
building upon their ability to regulate and process their big feelings. But knowing exactly how to do that can sometimes feel confusing for parents. And that is exactly why I've created a guide that teaches you how to incorporate emotion regulation building games into your child's play, all while their brain is most receptive to learning, which helps this knowledge to actually stick. In my free guide, Reduce Tantrums Before They Even Begin, I equip you with an understanding of what happens in your child's brain and body when they have a tantrum, and I give you five fun and simple games that strengthen their emotion regulation ability, which is going to help prevent meltdowns from happening in the first place. So go to drsarahbren.com forward slash resources to download this and many other free guides. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash resources. Until next week, don't be a stranger. 